right, we'll go ahead and get started talking about Jesus, unique Savior, or as a number of people are calling him today, just a fraud. And I want to begin by just mentioning a few things that if you've never heard them before, you know, they might be just a little bit uh, puzzling or concerning, maybe aggravating, but let me just tell you what you might find if you're taking some kind of world religions class in a secular or maybe quote-unquote Christian university or maybe a comparative religions type class where they talk about the Greek god Dionysus and how he was the son of the mythological Greek god Zeus and the mortal virgin, sound familiar? Woman named Simile. Supposedly, he descended to the Hadean world, conquered death, and brought his dead mother back to the land of the living. Is said to have died and rose again. His followers allegedly called him Redeemer and used grape juice to symbolize his blood. And we're told his story goes back to at least 500 B.C. Krishna has been, Indian God, been portrayed as hanging on a cross with holes through his hands and feet, supposedly, called Lord and Savior, supposedly rose from the dead and ascended into heaven. And his story goes back 1,200 years before Christ, we're told. Some claim. Or what about the Egyptian god Osiris, the mythological god whose story is recorded in the Egyptian Book of the Dead, being called King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Sound familiar? After being put to death, he allegedly arose and wore the name the Resurrected One. His scribe, Annie, is described as one whose word is truth, and his story goes back to 1400 before Christ. 1400 B.C. According to former Christian-turned-skeptic Farrell Till, in a debate he had with Norman Geisler in Columbus, Georgia, a few years, several years ago, as Rellin would like for me to say, the, you know, the late 1900s. <laughs> Rellin didn't know about the late 1900s. He you know, he's used to hearing about the late 1800s. But when we say the late 1900s, that makes us you know, 90s people feel kind of old. Farrell Till said, he you know, crucified, resurrected Savior gods who had been born of virgins were a dime a dozen by the time that Jesus was born, supposedly. Don Zomberg said the legend of Jesus is little more than a variant of older religions common to the Middle East thousands of years ago. Now these are all claims that are made and some are much to do about nothing and some raise questions that ought to be answered. Maybe you read the Da Vinci Code back in the early 2000s not the late 1900s, just so we don't feel so old, right? Don't recommend the Da Vinci Code. It's a very entertaining book, but like a lot of entertainment, has some damaging thoughts in there in terms of false teachings about who Jesus was and is. And one of the main lead characters in this entertainment, uh, supposedly has a lot of truth in it kind of novel, 
Lee Teabing said, Nothing in Christianity is original. The pre-Christian god Mithras called the Son of God and Light of the World was born on December 25th, died and was buried in a rock tomb and then resurrected in three days. By the way, December 25th is also the birthday of Osiris, Adonis, and Dionysus. The newborn Krishna was presented with gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Wow. Well, here's what you need to know about this matter. By the way, I was talking to a non-Christian friend out in Texas. We had graduated high school together, and we were good friends in school. And He started carrying on one day about, well, you know, some of his problems with the Bible and Jesus. and He started saying all these things, and I said... I said, hey, buddy, did you, did you just read the Da Vinci Code? He said, yeah, how'd you know? I said, because everything you're saying sounds like it came out of the Da Vinci Code. Well, he didn't realize that there were a lot of things that were said in this book that simply were either untrue or absolutely unproven and unprovable. I don't know of any evidence that, for example, that Krishna was presented with gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And what is it that we don't know about December 25th. Hey, I love December 25th. It's a good, you know, day that our family and friends get together and people, hey, you get off work, at least a lot of people do, on December 25th. But there's no evidence and there's no scripture that says that Jesus was born. I'm thankful that Jesus was born. I'm thankful that he came into the world. And that's one of the messages of scripture, right? The Messiah is coming. But there's no evidence that he came on December 25th. And so you can see how this kind of warped mindset of, well, look at all these other gods that were... I don't think there's any even evidence of that. I mean, just making up stuff left and right. Stephen Franklin said in Evangelical Theology, uh, Theology Review a few years ago, said, incarnation, far from being unique to Christianity, seems... To be a universal incarnation, God becoming flesh, God becoming human, far from being unique to Christianity, seems to be a universal possession of the religious heritage of mankind. If He is correct, why is that the case? Which is really what we want to talk about for a few minutes this evening. In an email I received some years ago, one gentleman started saying the same kinds of things. You know, supposedly all these saviors of the mankind, it's nothing new with Christianity. He talks about Osiris. and He says Christianity doesn't introduce anything new into the world when it speaks of a crucified Savior. The concept that is of a Savior God existed long, long ago. So where does today's Christianity draw its crucified Lord and Savior from? So supposedly what we read in the New Testament is just a copy of all sorts of things that people have been talking about for years. That's the accusation. And so we ask ourselves, well, if... If at least even some of those things are true, why is that? And why would that be the case? Why does history record some stories of some kind of died and rose from the dead Savior gods that predate the time of Jesus? Is Jesus the unique Savior of the world or merely an average fraud? Well, you know what I think about this. And it's not simply because I am graciously supported to work at a place like Apologetics Press or that I've been able to support my family by teaching and preaching the gospel. Listen, but I didn't, if I didn't believe that God exists, that the Bible is His Word, that Jesus Christ is the heaven-sent, virgin-born, miracle-working Son of God, 
I would not be standing before you tonight. I'm not a perfect man, but I, I, I think people who know me the best and maybe people who don't even like me that well would tell you I'm an honest person. And so why is it that someone like myself or you or others, why is it that we would say, wait a minute, I believe that Jesus Christ is the unique Savior in the world, but how would we answer some of these ideas and questions? Well, let me first just remind you of a very simple outline of the Bible. Maybe I'll remind you about this again tomorrow, but you, you know it, I'm sure, that the Old Testament is about the coming of the Messiah. The New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, is, is to tell us that, that the Messiah is here or was here. He, he lived and he lived among us, among humanity for about 33 years and Acts through Revelation is about Jesus is coming again and how we are to behave ourselves, how we are to worship our God, how we are to serve our God in view of the, the return of Jesus. Now if Jesus' coming was the theme and is the theme of the Old Testament, if that is the case, and for thousands of years, as we noted from one prophecy last night, 700 years before Christ, and if, if the prophets were, were teaching about the coming one, if the prophets of Israel foretold about the coming of a unique, heaven-sent, virgin-born, miracle-working, sacrificial, resurrected-from-the-dead Savior, is it not logical to conclude that God also revealed at least some of this message to the Gentiles. You say, Eric, where would you get that from? Well, let's explore this just for a few minutes here this evening. Consider where stories of resurrected so-called Savior gods would have originated. First of all, in Luke chapter 11, here is a passage, once again, where Jesus is being accosted by his enemies. He is being, you know, he's responding to them. And he says, Therefore the wisdom of God also said, I will send them prophets and apostles, and some of them they will kill and persecute. That the blood, you know, this is Jesus talking to his enemies, that the blood of all the prophets which was shed from the foundation of the world may be required of this generation from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah who perished between the altar and the temple. Yes, I say to you, it shall be required of this generation. My point in sharing this particular passage that Luke wrote, that the Holy Spirit used Luke to write some 2,000 years ago, is to see something that maybe you've, maybe you've never really noticed before, but that Luke records Jesus indicating something about the prophets. How long have God's prophets been around? Did, let me ask it this way. Did God's prophets begin, think, think critically about this, did they begin with Moses in about 1500 B.C.? Was he the very first prophet? No, what did, what did Jesus say? Jesus said, the prophets, they've been here since the foundation of the world. And he connects Abel. Now, why would he connect Abel? I, I mean, he doesn't tell us, but one thing we do know is that Abel offered a sacrifice by what? By faith. And faith comes by hearing and hearing by the... Word of God, by the word of the Lord. So Abel had 
to have had some kind of revelation from God. This, this was the patriarchal ages where God was speaking to the fathers. And you know, this is before the law of Moses. So here is the Son of God saying that Abel, he connected Abel and he connected prophets to the time of Abel and Abel to the time of prophets. Abel is the second generation of people on earth. I mean, more, what, over 2,000 years? Probably a good 2,500 years before Moses. Hmm, that's interesting, isn't it? That there were prophets that were around. Notice what Luke wrote, Peter saying, in Acts chapter 3. We're going to look at three passages that Luke actually penned here. Peter said, Repent therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that He may send Jesus Christ who was preached to you before whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things which God has spoken by the mouth of all His holy prophets since the world began. If you're still listening tonight, it looks like most of you are. And listen, if you ate as much as I did tonight, you probably have a hard time listening, and I understand. But are you making some connections here? Why would there be these stories in different cultures around the world of some kind of maybe Savior coming that wasn't a part of the Hebrew Old Testament pen beginning at the time of Moses? What did Luke say that Jesus said in Luke 11? What did Luke say that Peter said by inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Acts 3? And what is it that we read John the baptizer's father saying in Luke chapter 1? John the baptizer's father, Zacharias, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed is the Lord God of Israel, for He has visited and redeemed His people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of His servant David, as He spoke by the mouth of His holy prophets who have been, since when? Since the world began. So let me just ask you this, thinking about it again, just trying to be consistent with Scripture. If the theme of the Old Testament was... The main message is through prophecy, through predictions, through pictures like, you know, Jonah was in the belly of a big fish or a big sea creature for three days and three nights. Hmm, what did that, uh, what was that foreshadowing that what was going to come? Jesus being in Matthew chapter 12 verses 38 through 40, Jesus being in the tomb for three days and three what you see even though the the old testament and the bible as a whole is so rich and full of so much soul nurturing material that we can talk about all sorts of things in scripture we're studying genesis in at Watumka, my home congregation on sunday mornings and you know it, it's a blessing to study about abraham noah abraham isaac jacob uh, joseph but what's the main theme of Genesis? Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 and following. That through Abraham's seed, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. Well, how's that? Through the Messiah. Through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Judah. 
prophecies and predictions that are made in the time of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Judah, recorded by Moses years later, if that was the theme of the Old Testament, what do you think the theme of the message might have been of the prophets before the time of Moses? Wouldn't it make sense that that would have been one of the same main messages? God told Abraham that in his seed all families and nations of the earth would be blessed. The first prophecy goes back, even unbelieving Jews admit this, that the first messianic prophecy goes back to Genesis 3.15, right after the fall of man, where God said to Satan, and I will put an enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise your head, Satan, and you shall bruise his heel. You're going to hurt him. He's going to be hurt through lies and pride and people who were intimidated by Jesus, afraid of Jesus, jealous of Jesus, put him on a cross, crucify him, crucify him. But Jesus rose three days later and he crushed the head of Satan. Prophesied about all the way back in the garden. God's scheme of redemption through a hero that would save the world from sin was being revealed ever since the fall of man, ever since Genesis chapter 3. And notice this, you can go to Genesis chapter 5 and read of Enoch, just seven generations from Adam, who is said to have walked with God 300 years and was a prophet. He prophesied. Jude actually records one of his prophecies by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Walking with God is not simply like going on a literal walk, you know, for 300 years. He was submissive to God. He loved God. He followed God for three centuries. And he was a prophet. And that was long before the time of Moses. Do you think in all of those three centuries that God may have revealed to a person with whom he had a relationship with and was a prophet of God? Do you think he may have revealed at some point various things about the coming one who would crush the head of Satan? It makes perfect sense biblically speaking. Noah was a preacher of righteousness, 2 Peter 2 and verse 5. We don't know all that the Holy Spirit inspired Noah to preach. We would conclude, it would seem rational to conclude that he preached a good bit about the coming of a flood that was going to destroy the world, so you need to repent. But, you know, as we noticed last night, here's Micah, this prophet, Micah chapter 5. He is talking about this doomsday scenario with what's going on there with the Assyrians uh, uh, encompassing and surrounding Jerusalem during the time of King Hezekiah. I mean, it, it looked like certain defeat. And then there was going to come Babylonian captivity a hundred years later. But what was his main message? There are brighter days ahead. When? Well, he didn't tell them the number of years, but it would wind up being about 700 years later that as Isaiah would say in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, a light was going to come into the world. 
Jesus, the light of the world, came into the world. That was, that was the main message. I mean, that's the most important message of the prophets. It would seem that to make sense that if Noah preached, if the Spirit of God strove with man for 120 years during the time of Noah, Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 5 there, that if Noah was preaching for over a century, if that's what is meant by the Spirit of God, God's Spirit through the preaching of Noah, striving with mankind, the divine long-suffering, Peter says, waited during the days of Noah, that it would just make sense that there were times when God likely would have revealed to Noah the Savior is coming. And some details about that that Noah and his family likely would have known. By the way, in Genesis chapter 14, you can read there was the king of Salem, Melchizedek, who is called the priest of the Most High God. How could he be a real priest of the Most High God without any kind of revelation from God? I would contend that implied in such a statement is he was living during patriarchal times, and he would have had some kind of, in some way, revelation from God so that he would know how to be a good priest of the Most High God. This was one that you might remember to whom Abraham paid tithes. Well, you say, well, Eric, I don't, I don't, we don't you know, there's just so much that we don't know about the first 2,000 years because the first 2,000 years of human history we have 11 chapters of in, in the Bible. But I'm, I, I contend based upon all these passages we've already looked at and what we've seen so far is that it makes perfect logical and biblical sense that people around the world would have begun learning about the Messiah potentially outside of Judaism from prophets who prophesied it would make sense at least sometimes about the main purpose of prophets prophesying. Remember last night we dealt with Balaam. Balaam, a Mesopotamian soothsayer that God used, you remember, that we showed where he made a prophecy that may have been more immediate in its application, 400 years removed immediate, in terms of the coming of David. The scepter shall not depart from Judah. What was it? Not, I've got Genesis 49 and verse 10 on my mind, but in... The book of Numbers, can't remember the exact phrase. Now I have it right here. He talks about a star shall come out of Jacob and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. And we dealt with this last night about how this seems like it has its fullest and remote application, but fullest sense in the coming of Jesus the Messiah whose entrance into the world was noted by a what in the sky? By a star in the sky. How did a Mesopotamian soothsayer know anything about this? Because God gave him that information. And so it's kind of interesting and I think a fun mental and biblical exercise to think about, oh, so you mean God cared about people who were not Jews? Absolutely he did. We can't, don't have the mindset that just because... And it's an amazing fact that God brought the Messiah into the world through the family of Abraham and his descendants. 
But that didn't mean that everyone outside of Abraham's family were just destined to be lost and were never going to have any kind of direction in this world. No, not, not at all. Remember Rahab the Canaanite heard of the great works of Jehovah and believed in them. And that was before Jericho was conquered and she was uh, allowed her and her family, you recall, if they would stay in that uh, her house in the wall with the scarlet cord hanging out, that, that, you know, that this was before all of that happened, that she had heard about the great things. I'm not saying that that was necessarily miraculous or supernatural. I'm saying that there were different ways that people heard about the great things that God was and would do. And remember last night we talked about how the wise men from the east, they somehow knew about the birth of the Messiah having received divine direction. You say, well, the star in the east said, said that it was, I mean, that, that was their sign. But how do we know, how did they know that was the sign? I don't know of any indication that these wise men from the east were Jews. It would seem to be that they were wise men from the east. Magi, who may have had no connection with Judaism in terms of being followers of the Mosaic law. We don't know for sure. But my point is, isn't it interesting that some of the first ones who found out that the Messiah had come into the world were likely non-Jews? How did they know? Well, we're not privy to that information, but we do know this, that those wise men, that they were given miraculous knowledge later, for sure, when they were told in Matthew chapter 2, being divinely warned in a dream, they should not return to Herod, you recall, after worshiping Jesus, the newborn. Well, they received divine direction. Why would there be stories of Savior gods outside of Judaism? Well, it seemed to me maybe for the same reason why there are flood stories, stories of a worldwide flood outside of the Bible. You know, sometimes people are like, well, how could there be a story of a flood outside of the Bible? Well, when did the flood occur? We don't know. You know, I can't give you the exact year, but it was probably around 2500 B.C., probably 500 plus years before Abraham. When did Moses roughly begin writing the Pentateuch in the book of Genesis? About 1500 B.C., a thousand years later. What do you think people talked about for a thousand years between the time of Noah and Moses? Probably about the flood. And so those stories would have been passed down and they, as the people, as Shem, Ham, and Japheth and their children after the Tower of Babel spread around the globe, what do you think they took with them? Stories of a flood. You know, there are... Even unbelievers have admitted there are hundreds of flood legends, they call them legends, around the world. Makes perfect sense if there was a worldwide flood. Maybe you learned about that in your VBS last summer, by the way. I heard you had a good VBS on, on the flood. Well, if Noah and his children and their descendants after the Tower of Babel spread around the globe and they had heard about the coming of a Messiah a Savior who's going to come save people. It makes sense that that message would have gone around the world even before the Savior came, even among pagan, some pagan nations. God did not forsake non-Jewish nations. Obadiah prophesied about the destruction of Edom. 
Jonah prophesied to the Assyrians in Nineveh. Didn't want to, did he? I mean, he was heading, I'm getting out of here. Nope, don't want to go there. Heading to Tarshish. Listen, there's no point in running from God. All right? Let's just follow him. Let's let him use us. Jonah's a great, great example to us in many ways, the, the book of Jonah. But one of the things we learned from that is God was not forsaking all other nations. He wanted them. I mean, this was one of the most wicked nations on earth. And Jonah went there and repented. And God relinquished the destruction of Assyria at that time. They would not be punished for about a hundred years or so later. In fact, a hundred years later, Nahum prophesied of Assyria's doom. So again, sometimes it's so easy to, to, to think, well, you know, this is what I read in the Old Testament. It must just be all about the Jewish nation. Wait a minute, that doesn't mean that God didn't care about all the other nations. Amos and Ezekiel delivered judgments to the Ammonites, the Phoenicians, the Egyptians, the Edomites. Why is it that you, even among pagan nations, you would read about sacrifices? I don't know for sure, but maybe we could reason this way. Since at least the time of Abel, we know this, humans have been offering animal sacrifices. Even Noah, after uh, got off the ark, built an altar to the Lord, took of every clean animal and every clean bird. Of course, he had to have more than two of each of the clean kind, right? Because if he still had two, you remember he took seven of the clean on the ark because he was going to sacrifice afterwards. Job was a patriarch who offered burnt offerings. God instructed Job's friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar to offer burnt offerings. Now, even atheists have admitted that long before the Old Testament and New Testaments were penned, mankind sought atonement for sins by sacrificing their best. Many pagan nations apparently came to believe that the best or most valuable sacrifice they could give was the life of a sinless child. Now that doesn't make it right, but they understood, wait a minute, you know, a human life is more important than an animal life. Some apparently came to believe that the best sacrifice was not the child of an ordinary person, but of a king. Even better was a royal son who was not forced to die, but who freely died for the people. Still better was a perfect royal son who freely died for his people. But since all humans sin, the ultimate sacrifice would become a divine incarnation who died for his people. I don't know exactly if that was everyone's you know, line of reasoning. But if you were to ask me, you know, who are the precious ones in my sphere of influence? Well, who are yours? I mean, God wants us to love everyone, including our enemies. But I, I like to think I wouldn't hesitate for a moment to protect my wife, to protect my children. I mean, they're precious to me. And apparently, even we know some of the Jews, like in the days of Ahaz and Manasseh, kings of Judah, they offered their own children in sacrifice as they were imitating pagan nations. Do you think that their own children were more valuable to them than sheep? Yeah. 
it seems that people may have not only heard from prophets, but may have even reasoned some through, hey, this would be the most special sacrifice that you could ever have. A free will, perfect, sinless king or prince sacrifice himself. Well, the king of kings and lord of lords came to earth and he sacrificed himself. And it seems that not only do we have these prophecies in the Old Testament, but that the prophets who have been since the world began, began to prophesy some of those same things, even to nations outside of Judah. But why a resurrection? Well, since death entered the world through sin, man has sought to escape death. Death holds more terror for man than perhaps anything else on earth. We, we have, it seems, an innate sense to live. You know, I like to think that I would absolutely protect my wife. But do I want to live? I mean, if you hold my mouth and try to keep me underwater and not breathe, what am I going to do? I'm going to fight for my life. People want to live. Not only it's, it's like it's a reaction, but we also, as a Christian, Paul said, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. I mean, to die as gain, but I don't have a right to take my own life. If heaven is our home, if, if we're heading to paradise after this and then on to heaven later, that's good. That's great. But you know, until then, we're here to serve the King of kings and Lord of lords. Generally speaking, death holds more terror for man than perhaps anything on earth. Many nations invented gods like Osiris and Hercules who could defeat mankind's dreadful enemy death. Well, God's prophets have prophesied of the seed of woman, God's holy one, who would bless all the nations of the earth through his death and resurrection, Psalm 16.10. That was a message of the Old Testament. And it was a reality that came 2,000 years ago when Jesus really came. Why were there stories that sound kind of similar to Jesus that may have been in different places around the world? Well, as we talked about last night, one of the unique things, one of the most amazing things about the life of Jesus is that it was recorded before He ever came to earth. That's a miracle. That's evidence that the Bible is from God and it's evidence that Jesus is from God. And I would contend it makes perfect sense that those outside of Israel, when the prophets prophesied, that some of their message would have been about the same. It's the message that saves it's the unique message about the unique Savior. And any kind of similarities there are between the unique heaven-sent Son of God and any stories that you read throughout history, well, it shouldn't really be surprising. But here's the thing. As we conclude tonight, let me just say, Jesus' story is absolutely unique in a number of other ways. Unlike Dionysus and Osiris and Mithras, and Zeus and Hercules, Jesus really walked the earth. He was a real human being, born of a woman, Galatians chapter 4 and verse 4. And we have not only, by the way, what year do we live in? What is this? 2024. What's that based on? I mean like 2024 years since what? Since 
the Christ entered the world. What was before Christ? Oh yeah, that's, that's right. B.C. stands for before Christ. A.D. stands for Anno Domini, in the year of the Lord. Now, we have our political correct way of doing things today. You know, B.C.E., before the common or current error, and C.E., the current era. <laughs> you can change the letters all you want. What do they still represent? Christ. Christ really came into the world. The Bible tells us that. Historians tell us that. Whether it's a Jewish historian like Josephus or Roman historians like Tacitus and Suetonius or Roman leaders like the governor of Bithynia, Pliny the Younger in the late 1st and early 2nd century A.D. And others testifying he was a real person. A real person who really lived and worked the kind of miracles that we talked about last hour and was unlike all of these other other gods, quote-unquote gods, little g, in these pagan nations where their gods were committing all sorts of immoral acts oftentimes. God is pure. God is holy. And when Jesus came to earth and that rich young ruler came to Him and said, Good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? Jesus said, Why do you call me good? There is no one good but one that is God. Jesus was not denying his deity there. I mean, he would later tell that man, go sell whatever you have, give it to the poor, come and follow me. Have you ever told someone that? <laughs> like, come follow, like, give away your riches, come follow me? No, God does that. God did that. Jesus is God. He had the power to tell him that, the authority to tell him that, the expectation to tell him that. This man had an unhealthy attachment to riches. Jesus knew that. That's what Jesus told him. Jesus wanted him to see, though, when he said, good teacher, that Jesus was not just another good man. If he was innately good, then he was God. Jesus was different, and he's unique in that he is innately good. He, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, God is the standard of morality because God is perfectly good and righteous which is the reason that you and I can be saved. Because God's perfection came down to earth and was the perfect Lamb of God. John chapter 1, verse 21, John the, the baptizer said, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He could do that because He had no sin. He could take away our sin because He was the perfect Lamb of God who willingly gave His life for you and me. And what He asked in return is for us to live for Him to live for Him, to die to, to our fleshly desires. And we have them. But we die daily to those fleshly desires. We come running to Jesus. We come confessing Jesus is the Son of God. We turn away, dying to our old man, turning to God. And we're immersed in water for the forgiveness of our sins. That water has no power. The power is in the blood of Jesus Christ. The power is in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21. The like figure we're into, baptism does also now save us. Not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by or through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Have you been immersed for the forgiveness of your sins? Are you, are you willing to turn away from sin, turn to Jesus? 
if you are willing, there certainly has been enough water the last couple of days to baptize you. We can find that water somewhere, probably right back here. If you are a Christian, but you've, as we might say, kind of fallen off the wagon, not really being what I should be. You know what? It's just exciting to be a follower of the unique Savior of the world, the one and only Jesus Christ, who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Him.